morning. Am I on? Okay, good. Lots of moving parts this morning. Uh, occasionally, I get the honor of, of teaching you every once in a while, and uh, I'd just like to say thank you, Brian, for not being selfish and uh, allowing me to do that. Two things before we get started. They're kind of disclaimers. One, this message is brought to you by cold medicine and coffee. Um, the combination of the two, I, I caught whatever was going around this, this last week, and yesterday my, my ears started like shutting down. Like, and I used to make fun of Lisa a few weeks back, and, and now it's not so funny for some reason. Two, I just want to say that the stuff that we're talking about this morning isn't something that I'm an expert in. In fact, I'm probably worse than you because I've studied this stuff and I still get it wrong. So we're on this journey together. Please don't feel like you're being preached at. Please don't feel like I'm standing up here going, oh, I know what, what it is to do all this and I'm so great and you guys should follow my example. That's not what I'm saying at all, okay? We're just on the journey together. Can we do that together? In that, can I just share an embarrassing story maybe? A little bit, okay? I, I like to start this way. It kind of breaks the ice. Ever run into someone that's just mean? Just plain mean. Kind of nasty. Like, no matter what you say, no matter what you do, they're just kind of bitter people, you know? Ever run into someone like that? Someone who, maybe who's wounded you so deeply that afterwards you're not even sure if you're ever going to be the same person that you were before you encountered this person. Anybody? I know I have. I can see his face right now. Like if I close my eyes, I can see every detail of his face. Verbally, this guy was mean. In meetings, he would verbally assault me and cut me to shreds. Every single idea I would share, he would, he would respond, that is the stupidest idea I've ever heard. One time we were playing uh, guitars together and he leans over to me and goes, in his mic, mind you, so that our whole 70-piece chorale and everyone could hear this, he says, why are you even playing guitar? You absolutely stink. Well, thank you. I'm glad I'm leading worship with you today. One time he blew up in rage just before we were going out to lead worship, and he drops the F-bomb like six times in a row. And I'm like, dude, what's wrong? And he like was blowing up because his music stand was like six inches away from where it was supposed to be. It was like here. I didn't have the guts to tell him at the time, but he's the one who moved it. And the whole team knew it. He made my life so completely miserable that I actually wanted to quit my job and work for Taco Bell at $8 an hour. I did. At least there, if I got yelled at, I'd get a free taco for lunch, you know. There was a bonus. Physically, he was mean. He was a rough guy. He would always want to prove that he's stronger than you. You know, when he shook his hand, he, would, he wouldn't just crush your hand because he was strong and just kind of beefy. He would crush your hand to prove that he was stronger than you. You know those ones? And then you start to let go and you're like... He'd grab the meat of your neck when he got mad at you. He'd slam his fists on the table in rage. Emotionally, he was mean. He'd be your best buddy one second, and then like two seconds later, he was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You're like, what? Who are you? What are you on, dude? And I started to hate him. Are you there with me? I hated him, and I couldn't bring myself to forgive him for the things that he was doing to me. And I felt bitterness kind of creeping into my heart and overtaking myself. And it was changing who I was. Check out how this was changing me. Here's the embarrassing part. One day I came home to find that my garage had been broken into and about $3,000 worth of tools had been stolen out of it. And it was kind of devastating. I felt extremely violated. I don't know if you've ever had anything stolen from your own home, but it's, it's just, you feel violated. You feel unsafe in your very own home. And as I was relating the story to him the next day, he callously responded, well, it happens. Really? It happens? Dude, how about, let's pray about it. How about just hug it out? A few months later, the same coworker totaled his brand new Dodge Cummins truck. Brand spanking new. Because he was reading the emails off his phone. He came in and described the incident as spiritual warfare. 
spiritual warfare, you know what I said? You got it. Well, it happens. It's what happens when you read a three-inch screen when you're driving a truck that's the cab's like up to this high and you have to take a ladder up into it. Here's the scariest thing. I didn't feel one bit sorry for him at all. Not an iota. There was nothing in me that was like, dude, I feel bad for him. In fact, I felt like laughing. Okay, I, I did laugh. To his face. Tears streaming down my face. It was bad. It was bad. Now, before you call a special meeting afterwards and, and look for a new worship pastor, I maybe pose this question that you're maybe not that much different than I am, are you? Can I ask you a few questions to find out, like a litmus test this morning? Do you find it easy to forgive someone who's wronged you? I mean, is it like the first reaction, like, oh, I just need to forget this person? Especially when they do it over and over and over and over and over and over again? Do you find it easy to forgive them? Do you find it easy not to focus on what they did or what they said to you? Or, or do you find that it sometimes dominates your thinking, what they did, what they said? I mean, let's be brutally honest for a moment this morning. How many of you would say that there is someone in your life right now that you have a major problem with? Anybody? Any takers? Thank you. We have some honest people here. The rest of you might be lying. We'll see. We'll check this out afterwards. These people, if they were standing in front of you right now, you probably wouldn't be thinking churchy thoughts, would you? Let's face it this morning. It's, it's hard to forgive people, isn't it? It is. Maybe it's hard to forgive them because they didn't ask to be forgiven. Or if they did, they really didn't mean it. They just kind of say, well, I'm sorry. You know, and then they go on with their life and you're like, that really doesn't cut it. Maybe what they did, they don't deserve to be forgiven, quote unquote. What they did to you was unspeakable. It hurt you to your very core. It was evil. It was wrong. And like Haman did to Esther and to her uncle and to her people, how should we respond when somebody does you dirty? Well, in the first book of the Bible, there's a crazy story about a man who had to wrestle with this exact same question. How should we respond when someone does us dirty? The story starts in the uh, 37th chapter of Genesis. So it's in the first book of your Bible. And it ends in 50. It's like almost a quarter of Genesis story. So it's kind of important, the beginning book, and it's almost uh, a, a quarter of the Bible. And we're going to be looking at at the last couple chapters of the story. So if you turn to Genesis 45, that's kind of where we'll be mostly this morning. It's right near the front, Genesis uh, 45 is where we'll be. So just kind of stick your finger or leave it on your lap. We'll come back to that in a second. But there's a lot that I need to kind of bring you up to speed. So I need everyone just to mentally put some seatbelts on, keep your arms and hands inside the cart at all times. I'm not responsible for anything lost, broken, or damaged. Let's find out what's going on with Joseph, the story of Joseph, the highlights. Here we go. Now, at the beginning of the story, Joseph is the second youngest out of 13 brothers, and he's obviously the favorite in the family. He is the absolute favorite in the family. Genesis 37.3 plainly tells us this. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and from his favorite wife. He had many and many mistresses. So he made an ornate robe for him. Jacob loved Joseph way above all the other brothers. Way above. And he gets a special garment. And now Joseph is 17 years old, and his father sends Joseph out to check on the older 11 brothers. And surprise, surprise, these brothers weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing while they were gone from dad. And he runs back to dad, and he tattles on them, and they get busted, and they get into major trouble. And guess what? The brothers did not like this. Can you guess why? Because they got busted. Then he has a crazy dream where all his brothers bow down to him. And coming out of this situation where he just tattled on them and he got them into trouble, he decides 
the best idea I have is I'm going to share this dream with my brothers. And so he does. Guess what, brothers? I had this crazy dream, and you all bow down to me. How do you think that went over? You should try that to some of your older siblings today. Just call them up. Hey, I know we haven't talked in a while, but uh, they hated him even more, the Scripture says. Two verses later, two verses later, he has yet another dream. And now this time, the brothers are bowing, the father is bowing, the mother is bowing, everyone is bowing. And he has not learned from the previous lesson, and so guess what he does? He shares it again. This time, it ended even worse. The brothers are so insanely jealous, their hatred boils to the point where Joseph comes out to check on them a second time. They decide to end his dreams permanently. Look at what Scripture says in Genesis 37. It's up on the board here. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to do what? Kill him. Does that sound like a messed up family to you? Are you thinking, man, my family looks kind of good now. I'm kind of looking forward to Thanksgiving instead of what I was last year. Now here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns or a pit that, and tell, tell dad that a ferocious animal has devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. We will end this right now. We are not bowing to this kid. Long story short, they don't kill him, they beat the snot out of him, strip him, throw him into an empty well, and then they sell him to a caravan of slavers headed to Egypt. That's a really short inversion of this story. Stripped of his clothes, stripped of his dignity, stripped of his position, stripped of pride, seemingly stripped of his dreams, Joseph becomes a slave in Egypt to Potiphar. But God is with him like we see in the story of Esther, kind of working in the background. And Joseph rises out of this position of slave to like being in control of the whole entire home, a position he should have never had, and that's where he catches the eye of the master's wife. Day after day, day in, day out, she throws herself at Joseph, and Joseph refuses to sleep with her until one day she grabs him by his tunic or his long shirt and forces Joseph to make a choice. I either have to stay here or leave my clothes behind. So guess what he does? He leaves it behind, literally, walks out the door, runs out. And armed with evidence, she wrongfully accuses Joseph of assaulting her. And although Joseph is absolutely innocent, he's a slave. So he's throwaway and he ends up in prison. He would later describe that place as a pit. It's now the second pit that he's been in. And he spends the next six to eight years in prison again. Like Esther, God is still working out behind the scenes. And two guys show up in prison. Pharaoh's baker and his cupbearer, and they have a, a crazy set of dreams, and those dreams are so disturbing that they wanted to tell someone and, and find out what it meant. And so with God's help, Joseph interprets the dreams correctly. He says this, hey, cupbearer, this is the deal. You're going back to work. But the baker, I'm sorry, but you're not going to make it out of here alive. He just tells the truth and lets it, lets it lie. And just before the cupbearer gets released and go back to work, Joseph pleads with him. He pleads, please share my story with Pharaoh. Tell him how I was, how I was sold as a slave by my brothers and I got sent down. I don't belong here. And then I got wrongfully accused. Please remember me. The cupbearer's like, you got it, man. You, you totally pulled through the day. You saved, you saved the day here. You told me what's going on. I will remember you. And the second he's released, guess what? He forgets for two years. You see, when we read through Scripture, it's like it almost seems like it's happening like moment by moment, but there's like a two-year period gap here where Joseph gets completely forgotten and left behind. Imagine how that stung. And then one night, lo and behold, Pharaoh has a horrible dream. Horrible. 
and he can't find anyone to tell him what it was, and he can't find out anyone to tell him what it meant. And that's when the cupbearer remembers. Oh, man. A pharaoh. Do you remember when you got mad at me and tossed me into jail? Yeah, that was good times, good times, yeah. Well, anyway, I met this guy, Joseph, and he interpreted my crazy dream and told me exactly what you would do, and guess what? It came to be. I think we should call him up. And so Pharaoh calls out Joseph, and again, with God's help, Joseph not only interprets the dream, but he tells Pharaoh what the dream was without Pharaoh ever having to tell him what the dream was. Talk about mind-blowing. And he tells Pharaoh, listen, there's going to be seven years of incredible crops, and then there's going to be seven years of absolutely nothing. And then Joseph lays out a plan to survive this horrible situation, and Pharaoh says to him, Listen, Joseph, that sounds like a great plan. That sounds like an awesome plan. Guess what? You're in charge. You're in charge of the whole thing. No one's going to be more powerful than you than me. Here's my ring. Here's my credit card. Here's everything. Do whatever you need to do to get it done. You save the day. Let's do this. I want you to catch this number. Just catch this number in your mind. Thirteen. Thirteen years. Thirteen years incredibly long and difficult years had passed between this day when Pharaoh calls him up out of the pit and the day he was thrown into the original pit. Thirteen long years of betrayal, of being lonely, of being forgotten, of being wrongfully accused, and, and just having the snot kicked out of his whole entire life. Big dominoes falling. Just seemed like he couldn't catch a break. 13 years. When Joseph went into the pit the first time, he was 17. And when he got pulled out, he's 30. Just put that into perspective. You just graduated from high school or graduating or your junior year of high school. Your life's a wreck. And then at 30, you come out. Just put that into perspective. Joseph's life instantly goes from the pits to amazing. He gets married, he gets a wife, he has some kids, and then eight years later, while he's on the job doing his thing, saving the world, 11 starving men show up. Can you guess who they are? Dun, dun, dun! At this point, this would be the, the, the bad version of Ryan. I'd be like, <laughs> Vengeance is mine. Look what happens. Genesis 42. Now Joseph was the governor of the land. That's just a fancy word. means he was the man. The person who sold grain to all its people. And so when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces on the ground. Catch that. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But... He pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan? Why? We're here to buy food, they replied. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then look at verse 9. Can you read it with me? Then he remembered his dreams. A million and a half thoughts probably flood to the front of his mind just in that instant like this. And now he has to wrestle with the same question, right? How do we respond when people do you dirty? He remembered his dreams and he remembered their treatment. He remembered the domino effect they had in their life and he reacts. In, in, in order to protect himself and hide his true identity, he speaks harshly to them. Joseph is 38 now, 38. And a ton of water has gone under the bridge, 21 years worth of water, and sometime between when he was thrown into the pit and now, he's probably had to wrestle with some of these feelings of what the brothers did to him and how they did him dirty. And he's probably come to some kind of peace about it. But now that they're face to face with him, and you've been there, haven't you? It's easy to come to peace with it when you're separated, but then they show up and they're there. Man, it's a whole other ballgame, is it not? And then everything floods to the front 
And it doesn't matter sometimes what you've decided over here. There's some reactions that happen. And I believe we see a human side of Joseph. Joseph's one of my heroes. Man, I had him on a pedestal. I named one of my kids after Joseph. Joseph is my Joseph. Luke was Luke because I like Star Wars. It's totally ungodly, but it's cool because I can say, I am your father, which is pretty rad. But Joseph, I used to like put him on this pedestal of like, he's like perfect. He just had this great plan and he knew that when the brothers showed up, he just needed to test them out to see if they were okay. But this reading through as like an adult now, like as an adult adult, I'm looking at this passage thinking, maybe he's a little more human. And I just want us to kind of think about that. Maybe there's some reaction going on here. In fact, the path that Joseph takes to forgiveness really is kind of crummy for his family. It is. If you read through this whole entire story, he, he jerks him back and forth. Joseph continues to conceal his true identity and he puts the brothers through a battery of tests. The first test, he just says, listen, I don't believe your story. I need to see that you have another brother. You have to prove this to me, so I'm taking one of my bro your brothers, Simeon, and I'm going to throw him into prison, the same pit probably he came out of, which was a little bit of kind of cool. He got a little bit of revenge. He throws him into prison and says, you can get this guy back when you bring him back. My brother, my full brother, Benjamin. I want to make sure that you haven't treated him badly. He also secretly refunds their money and hides it in their grain sacks. So on their way home, they go to feed some of the animals and they open it up and guess what? They get a refund and they have no idea why it's there. And guess what they do? They panic. They panic. And, and all of a sudden, guilt starts to kind of bubble up to the surface and they say, man, God is getting us back. God is judging us. You wonder what he's judging them for. And they had a whole laundry list. These guys were really rotten guys. But guilt starts to bubble up. And so then they return home and they tell their dad the story. But Jacob refused to send Benjamin back to Egypt and the older brothers to save Simeon. He doesn't trust them because they've already lost a favorite son. And now Benjamin's the new one. Dad hasn't learned any lessons from the previous but when they run completely out of grain and there's no other options, I mean, you have to think this had to be a long period of time because they went to buy grain to survive a season. Think about it. There had to be a long period of time. He decides, I have no other choice. I have to send Benjamin back. And when the brothers show up in Egypt, Joseph runs them through another series of tests. He has them over for dinner and, and he sits them down in birth order. Now, for you and I, that might not be such a big deal, but the brothers totally caught the significance of this. I did the math. There are 39,917,000 different ways you can seat 11 different people. And Joseph did this on purpose because he has this, this cup, this fortune-telling cup that he has on the side here, and everyone knows what it does. And he's setting them up for something really crazy. But he sits them down, and, and their, their minds are absolutely blown. They're like, how does he know this? How, does he, how did he figure this out? And when they leave to go home with their grain, guess what he does again? Secretly refunds all the money. And then he takes this cup and he puts it in Benjamin's sack. Seals it up. Sends them on their way. They get some distance down the road and Joseph's servants catch up to him. And, and they're like, they're mad. They're piping mad. They're like, why would you do this to, my, to, our, to our, you know, our, our master? Why would you steal his special fortune-telling cup? And the brothers, so sure of their innocence, say this. It's great. They set themselves up. They say, listen, we are so innocent. It doesn't matter what you find in here. We know that we don't have it. And if you find it in anyone's grain sack, guess what you can do? You can kill them, and the rest of us will be your slaves forever. And then they're like, go right ahead. So the servants, knowing the plan, goes up and just like, Grain sack one, two, three, all the way down the row. He's finding money all the way down. You know he is. It's getting worse and worse. And he gets all the way down to poor Benjamin. 
And Benjamin's like, oh boy. They open it up and guess what's in there? The silver cup. The brothers tear their clothes in grief. They, they are, there's nothing they can recover from. They just said it themselves. They pronounced their own guilt and now they have to hang their heads and trudge all the way back to Joseph's house to find out what their fate is going to be. Now face to face with Joseph, they make no excuses, which is really uncommon for these brothers. They don't dodge any bullets. They don't blame shift. They don't do anything. And without knowing the person they were speaking to was indeed Joseph, they admit their guilt over what they did to him so many years ago. And Joseph can barely hold it all in and he forces everyone to go out. He says, leave from me. Get out of here. And then Judah, one of his brothers who was instrumental in selling Joseph as a slave, steps forward and offers his very own life in order to save his brother from the fate. Joseph comes out of hiding. Verse 1, it says, Joseph can no longer control himself. Before all of his attendants, he cries out, have everyone leave in my presence. Can you imagine what the brothers are thinking? He's thinking they're going to completely blow up and destroy us. I don't know what he's going to do, but it probably was a madhouse for a second there. So no one was with Joseph when he made himself known to the brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians outside of his complex heard him and reported back to Pharaoh. Joseph said to his brothers, can you imagine, like, the mask comes off? I am Joseph. Is my, brother, is my father still living? Man, look at the words that come next. His brothers were not able to answer him. It's probably the first time in their lives they're tongue-tied. Because Why? They were terrified. Why were they terrified? All of a sudden, all the little pieces come together. They just saw the last piece fold in. They're like, Joseph has been a puppet master in our life for the last however many years. And they're waiting for the other shoe to drop. If there's any time that Joseph could have said, I told you so, it was now. I told you you would bow down to me. You wouldn't listen. Instead, you beat me up, threw me in a pit, and ruined my life. If there was any time to exact revenge or take revenge on them, it would be now. That's what I would have done. I would have made their lives miserable, threw them into the pit. I would have made it just like my life. That's the human side of me. Don't go looking for a new worship pastor. I enjoy worshiping with you guys, seriously. They deserve all of that and more, do they not? But that's not what they get. Joseph is broken and his emotions can no longer be contained. So much so everyone hears about it and he has something to say to them. Look at verse 5 and 8. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that who sent me here? God sent me ahead of you so that then it was not you who sent me here but it was God and he made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, ruler of Egypt. And then in verse 10, he says, You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, everything you have, I'll provide for you here. And then he throws his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept all over them. Totally awkward. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. They had a lot to talk about. And they lived happily ever after. Everything was good, wasn't it? You probably know this by now, but forgiveness and restoration are really tricky things to hold on to, are they not? 
We can say we forgive somebody, and then years later, they do something similar, and then everything kind of compiles back up, right? And then all of a sudden, oh, oh, I want to hold that against them. Now check out what happens next. We're going to fast forward 17 more years, and that's where we're going to go to chapter 50. So turn to chapter 50, and that's where we'll land this morning. Verse 15, 50 verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that his father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrong things we did to him? Seventeen years have passed, forty years from the initial act of throwing him into the pit to today. And now Jacob is dead, and the final umbrella a protection for the ten older brothers is completely gone, and the true status of their relationship is now revealed. Their Facebook status went from brother to it's complicated. Ever been in one of those? Someone told me a couple years ago, dude, you got to check out your status, dude. You went to complicated on somebody. I'm like, oh, that's not good. And I don't want you to miss this. It's often assumed that forgiveness can be easily given and reconciliation can be cheaply achieved. But this is not the case. This is not the case all the time. Joseph's story is probably a more realistic model and a painful breach of trust has happened. Sometimes it can take a long, long, long time, longer than you ever wanted to or expect for full and complete restoration to take place. Joseph is now 56 years old. That's a long way from 17. Verse 16, so they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. The voice from the grave. This is what you're saying to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sin and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. There's some humor in this. You've got to admit it. Now, please forgive the sins of your servants of the God your father. It's like they're writing it for him. The poor brothers are so guilt-ridden and afraid, they, they can't approach Joseph in person. Ever been there when you're the person that wronged somebody? It's hard to get that conversation started. So they send a message ahead of time, and they don't even use their voice. They use their father's in, in hopes that it would kind of tug Joseph's heartstrings. Verse 17, second part, when the message came to him, what did Joseph do? Wept. He didn't just cry. This was a hot mess, Joseph, right here. He wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him and said, we are your slaves. Do you think some dreams came to mind again? For Joseph? There are several big buts in the Bible with one T. This is one of them. Verse 19. I want you to just circle it because this is an amazing one. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. What you did was wrong. You did me dirty. You, dis- you wanted to kill me. There's no recovery from that. But God intended it for what? Good. To accomplish what is being done. The saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you, your children. And then he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph doesn't take the easy way. He allows what he knew about God to totally eclipse his his human emotions and his bad memories. And the first thing he does is he refuses to judge the brothers or take any kind of revenge on them. In fact, he does the exact opposite. He tells them, listen, I'm going to take care of your families. I want you to notice this. The forgiveness isn't forgetting what they did. Joseph didn't say, oh, that's so in the past. That's totally under the rug. I don't care about it anymore. 
He called them out on it. What you did was wrong. Do you notice that? Sin is sin, and we don't do any good by ignoring it. But forgiveness for Joseph wasn't holding their sin against them. Does that sound familiar? Maybe as we come into the Easter season? Yeah, Joseph says, what you meant to do is destroy me. But God had a greater purpose, a greater good. Which reminds me of a passage that PR shared a few weeks ago, Romans 8.28. And he said a pastor would be up here telling you, so I'm going to fulfill that prophecy. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. You see, God didn't just work through these horrible circumstances, but he also worked through Joseph's weaknesses and his failings to bless people through his brokenness, through his scars, through his pain. And this is a bonus point. You get a free one this morning. Here it is. God doesn't promise to shield you from all evil. Nowhere in the Bible. But he does promise to work it out for good. And for Joseph, this realization didn't come instantly or easy. Remember, he's old. He was young when he went into this, but he is a well-seasoned man, and this is when he's learning it. When the process started, he was a spoiled tattletale, favorite of the father, and he really didn't know when to, to be quiet. He just ran his mouth sometimes, and it got him into a lot of troubles. But this is the most mature, most changed, most complete person that we see of Joseph. You see, what we see through Joseph's story is that the road to forgiveness and reconciliation often is a very long and winding road. It's one that's going to be difficult, but I can tell you from personal experience, it's worth the walk. And here's some steps you're going to need to take along the way to forgiveness. Here's four steps. One, we need to remember that no one's perfect. I don't like this one. I just have to admit it out loud. Because it points the finger back at me. When we're filled with resentment and bitterness and hurt, we tend to dehumanize the offender. They, they become the thing they did. And we treat that, that, them like an object to hate and we completely lose our perspective on the situation and the person because all we see is the filter of hate and the filter of hurt. That's all we see. We don't see anything else. That's all we see about the person. And we judge all of their actions. We judge all of their emotions. We judge their heart. We judge every single little thing. Ah, that sneeze. That meant, mmm. We get silly with it, do we not? I know I do. But the Bible tells us something very important, that we're all in the same boat, and it's found in Ecclesiastes 7.20. It says this, Indeed, there's no one on earth who's righteous. That means someone who's perfect, no one who does what's right, and here's the kicker, never sins. I hate to tell you this if you're learning this for the very first time, but no one in here is perfect. Just ask the person sitting next to you. No one is perfect. Nobody is. God is perfect, but he's not a person. He's God. And Jesus came to be the man God, and he lived a perfect life so he could make a sacrifice for us. But none of us are that perfect person. Every single one of us have hurt somebody to some degree or another. I was having this conversation with somebody who, who thought they never offended anyone. And I just, I really wanted to say, but you've offended me. I just couldn't get it out. really badly offended. We've all hurt people, whether we know it or not. That's just part of life. It's an unfortunate part because we're sinners. We need to, we have to remember that no one is perfect. Two, we need to give up our right to get even. <sighs> These steps do not get any easier. I'm just warning you, but this is the heart of forgiveness right here. Like Joseph, we need to eventually say, am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Romans 12, 19 tells us, do not take revenge, dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, 
I will avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. You might have the right to retaliate or punish someone for the thing they did, but you have to commit not to do it. I know what you're thinking, because I'm thinking the same thing. That's not fair. How many would admit that feels like it's not so fair? Come on. Thank you. Thank you. I see your hands. We'll have a support group afterwards. It's not fair, but I'm going to tell you it's healthy. And this is going to be a one-time decision. It's, it's going to be a decision you have to make over and over and over again. Over and over again. Sometimes, like moment by moment during the day, because you may not be displaced from this person. This person may be your spouse. It may be your child. It, it may be your boss. It may be a parent. It may be a neighbor who won't move. I've never had any like that. I'm not talking from personal experience. I don't want to add to the list for your meeting afterwards. We have to make a conscious choice to give up our right. We need to. We have to give up our right to get even. Thirdly, we need to respond to evil with good. And this is how you know you're making real progress in the path of forgiving someone for the wrong they've committed against you. You see, humanly speaking, it's pretty much impossible to respond to evil with good. You're going to need God's help. You're going to need the kind of love that only Jesus can give to you to respond to evil with good. Check out what comes right after the verse about not uh, taking revenge. On the contrary, verse 20 says, if your enemy is hungry, do what? Feed them. If they're thirsty, do what? Give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Not literally, but figuratively. Do not overcome by evil. Do be, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Like I said, this is going to be hard, humanly speaking, impossible, but it's a step we're going to have to take on the road to forgiveness. If you want to know what this kind of love looks like, just remember 1 Corinthians 13. Look it up later. Look it in your small groups. Discuss it. That's the chapter of love. And if you can weigh your vengeance against that chapter and still win, you're a better person than I am. See, we need to, we have to respond to evil with good. Lastly, we need to refocus on God's plan for our lives. This is a big one. Instead of spending our time focusing on the hurt and the person who hurt you, we need to refocus on God's purpose for our life, which is greater than any problem, greater than any pain that we're currently facing. And Joseph said it best in Genesis 50, 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done, the saving of many lives. And if we're ever going to move forward on the difficult path of forgiveness, then we have to shift our focus from the pain, shift our focus from the hurt, shift our focus from the situation and direct our eyes to the bigger picture that God's painting out there. And it's not just our story, it's his huge story. We're just a part of it. So we need to focus less on us and more on what God's doing around us. We have to and we must refocus on God's plan for our lives. See, the road to forgiveness is often a long and winding one. It's going to be difficult. These four steps are not easy. But I can tell you from personal experience, from real hurt, personal experience. It is worth the long and dredgerous walk. You know the guy I talked about earlier? You want to know what made the situation worse? One, he was my pastor. Two, he was my boss. Three, he was my wife's cousin-in-law. Every single event we had with family Every single time we got together, guess who I had to encounter? This enemy. I would get sick before I'd show up. I don't know about you in those situations. And I knew I had to change something in me. So I pleaded with God to help break my heart for what broke his heart. And years and years went by. Long years went by. And I started to see this man through a whole new lens. And what I started seeing was not an enemy, but someone who was really broken. Someone who had been hurt himself. Someone who needed forgiveness just like I needed forgiveness. 
And that's when the other shoe dropped in his life. Eleven years ago, this man started, his life started to unravel and his years of sinful behavior and meanness caught up to him. And I had the information I could have just made one phone call and it would have been the end of his career. The end. It wouldn't have taken much, would it, Julie? I wasn't even asked publicly by his new boss. And I decided, I just can't do it. I can't do it. Why? Because God was starting to do a work in him, but he was also doing a work in me. I was starting to love what God loved and grieve over what God grieved over. And my heart was breaking for him. And somehow through the horrible, painful, hurtful, lonely experiences, I'd become a better version of myself. One that reflected less of me and, and more of Jesus. One that was less impulsive, and I know that's really hard to believe, but you didn't know me 15 years ago. It was much worse, trust me. You should thank him for this. One that was less bitter, less jaded, one that was more forgiving, one that was more tender, one that was more, less selfish, one that was less defensive, one who could better relate to hurt people, one who could better admit that he was wrong. That's something that has come in handy. At this point in the game, I never got an apology from him. But I didn't need to. And it didn't change what I had to do. I needed to, I had to forgive this man. And the more I remembered that no one was perfect, the more I gave up my rights to get even, the more I responded to his evil with good, the more I refocused on God's plan for my life and what God was doing all around me, the easier these steps became. And I didn't, I didn't say it's easy, they became easier. Is it a difficult journey? You better believe it. Will you pull your hair out? Look, I'm living proof. But I have to tell you, again, it is worth every single painful step you'll take. It is worth it. And I tell you today, I would go back and do the whole thing all over again if I could be the person I am today standing in front of you. Because God's changed me. I was an idiot back then. Totally. God has broken me and he's changed me and he's molded me into the image of his son. And I hope the same for you. John Piper once asked, how in the world could I hold a grudge against someone when I've not been nearly offended like God's been offended? So much so that God's been so offended that he had to pay the life as his very own son in order that I would be forgiven. He went on to say, if we don't embrace and offer forgiveness, then we become the biggest hypocrites on the planet. Church, if we don't get it right, why in the world should the world come to this building? We are a bunch of hypocrites. Let's change that. So in changing that, I'm just going to ask, would you take a walk with me today? Just one or two steps. Some of us need to take little baby steps forward in the path of forgiveness. Your wounds are, are really fresh. They're really deep. And what happened to you was unspeakable. It's going to take you some time, but... It's healthy for you to get back up and start walking forward on the path of forgiveness. Others of you need to hold, take a, a giant leap forward. You've held on to the hurt. You've held on to the, the pain, the grudge way too long, and you know it. You know it. The Holy Spirit's been convicting you from the very beginning today. And it won't be easy. It won't seem fair, but it's healthy, and we need to do it. And as I started sharing my personal story this morning, a face probably came to your mind, did it not? You draw that face up. I want you to think about this person for a moment and look at the four steps up on the board. And I want you to say to God, God, which one of these do you want me to work with this person that the face is in your face right now, in your mind? I want you to think about that for a moment. What step do you need to take this afternoon, this week, on your path to forgiveness with the one whose face came to the forefront of your mind? Do you need to remember that no one's perfect? Do you need to give up your right to get even? Do you need to respond to evil with good? 
But you need to refocus on your plan for God's, God's plan for your life. Does everyone have a face and a number? I know I do. I'll tell you what mine is. Three. I had the hardest time doing this one. I don't know about you, but I just would like to exact revenge on people. And You know, if someone hurts me, I want to hurt them back. Would you admit to me this morning? Would you take a small leap forward of faith? And admit to me and everyone around you, this is the one I need to work on. Who would say one's the one I need to work on? Raise your hand if that's you. Anybody? Thank you. All over the place. How many would say it's two? Two's the one I need to work on. How many would say that? Thank you. How about three? Three's the one. That's mine. Both hands. How about four? It's a big one. It's a big one. All of us have work to do, do that. We have an assignment. Let's go change the course of history here at East Bay Church. Can we do that? Maybe you cross an aisle and ask for forgiveness or give forgiveness to someone that's really hurt you. But if we don't do it right here, we're wasting our time. We need to get it right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son into the world to die in my place for the sins I committed against you. For the sins I continue to do. Man, we can be lousy followers at time and I know I am. But yet, you continue to offer forgiveness you continue to walk with me. You continue to want a relationship with me. Lord, help us to extend that to other people. Help us to move forward in our, our faith walk of forgiveness this week. Give us the strength to do it. In your most precious name.